to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gave you a quick PSA today, people. I haven't talked about this, but six weeks ago, I was in a hospital for eight days. Now, I had stopped taking my heart medicine. I had cut the dose down because it was getting me tired, which I shouldn't have. So I ended up in the hospital for eight days, and not once did I get jello, which pissed me off a little bit. But my message to you is this. If you're taking any kind of medication, please talk to your doctor before you stop because being in a hospital sucks. Anyway, I feel great now. And I feel great for our guest today, man. I, I love the band he's in. He's a great he's a great singer. Uh, this band just came out with a new album, a new video. They're going on tour. And my guest is Mike Peters from The Alarm. How you doing, Mike? Thank you. How you doing today? Good? I'm fantastic, yeah. Really good here in Wales. Okay, California good. California weather looks fantastic. Actually, I moved back to New Jersey, and it's actually nice today, which is good because it's been really crappy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was in New York only two weeks ago, so uh, but, uh, any, any weather is usually better than Wales, but uh, this time around, we, we've looked out. <laughs> exactly. I got to ask you a question. Now, you know, I listen, I saw, I watched the, the new video, uh, uh, Blood Red, Viral Black. And, you know, because your band was in, in the late, in the 80s, you were involved in the big MTV scene, the big, you know, it helped break so many bands. What is the difference in shooting a video now as to it was shooting one back then? Well, it's a lot faster now. Um, the, the, um, the, the, the technology has, has, has become smaller. So you can film with... with SLR-type cameras with iPhones, you can use um, GoPros. You're not just relying on, you know, million-dollar cameras uh, and film and tape. And um, it, it, these days, you can actually see what you're shooting back pretty quickly on, on the screens and the monitors that the modern technology allows you to have access to. And, um, it's a, it's a, again, it's a much more um, uh, of a process that brings you close to what you're trying to achieve. Uh, always in the alarm that we used to have to do storyboards uh, and treatments and and, um, and and meet all the different producers who, who had an idea after listening to the song. But these days we, we just kind of can see things ourselves and um, and, and and see it through with, with our team. You know, some some videos uh, that the alarm was shot, we, we've almost filmed ourselves, uh, and then some we've, we've worked with some great producer directors still to this day and. Uh, so it's good to mix it up because, again, with with the alarm, the first video we ever made was the stand, and that was that was one run through with with a multi camera shoot in Los Angeles at uh, the old A and M Studios uh, lot, and um, and I just had the idea to paint spray the poppy, and it, it was it was done in twenty minutes, and it was whereas we did other other videos, things like Sold Me Down the River, where we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars flying to. America and shooting them in, in, in the mid, in the Midwest, in the, in, um, in you know in in the, that part of the world, and uh, it was hard hard to get to um, Bozeman. We were trying to get to shoot. It was it was a tough day, you know, and uh, and and then you never saw the result until three weeks later. Not often if you were disappointed, you couldn't go back and change anything. It was it was set in stone because the production costs were so high. It was a big wheel to turn. So you can have much more creative control in this day and age. Um, and now it's not as important. There's more outlets than just MTV. 
it's banging up on YouTube, Devo, you can share it on your website. So it's really fast medium to communicate now, and uh, and it's a pro- we all enjoy the process much more as a result. I've heard, you know, I've heard some of the also uh, artists say, you, yeah, you'd be lost in some of these videos, and then the production costs would come out of your back end for a lot of them. That's right, yeah, it was always, uh, you know, the, the production costs were always recoupable against your records, and you never really knew how much was being spent on a video, you never got to see the, the accounts, it was such, so vast, there was such a big crew, so many people involved, the production, third-party production companies. And for all we knew, the record company could have been saying, yeah, it cost $300,000, and it might have cost me 30000 or 3000 <laughs> we, we never knew. Um, you know, we, we just uh, were glad to be in the game, getting on with it. And, and that was the that was the rules of engagement in those days. And, and I, I always had a feeling that one day it would change, that the, the control would come back to the artist. You know, it, it wasn't just going to happen overnight. It would, it would take time. And, uh, and luckily, we're, we're of that mindset, so we can, um, you know, we can benefit from the new technologies and the new mindset that the artists have, and the, the new way they engage with labels and with the media. Um, we can, uh, we, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. We have a much healthier lifestyle and, and life expectancy <laughs> of, of what we're going to achieve as a result. So it's kind of liberated us from the alarm. Now, you ha- I want to talk about your early career, but I want to talk about the, the, the new album coming out, Sigma, which you're also going to tour uh, around the same time. What is your process for putting out a new album? When do you know it's time, like for Sigma? Was Sigma going in your head for a, a while, or what made you record uh, Sigma, and when, what made you choose when you're going to record, uh, release it? Well, we were working on what we perceived as a double album that was actually going to be called Blood Red Viral Black, which is the title of the first video we released in Sigma. And um, when we when we completed the work, we, I just felt that it was, um, and, and you know, with members of our team and the band, uh, we all talked it through, and we just felt that the world isn't a place where you can easily drop a double album into the lap of anybody. People haven't got the uh, listening fan, they haven't got the attention to give to it, and uh, so we decided to, to go with a, a sort of double approach, and, and, uh, um, and one part of the album first, and then the tour, with the full knowledge that we were going with the second part uh, in, in a year later, and uh, so the Sigma was, was finished, uh, not completed a year ago, but it was, we added to it after the fact that it was, um, you know, it was conceived a year ago around the time of our Equals album. But we already knew that Sigma was going to follow it in, in uh, June 2019. Now, how do you pick how do you pick the date to release it? What made you pick that you know your date? Is that the, is that you or how do you, how does that figure that? Yeah, that, that's again we've got a really great team around the alarm. You know, it's not just the band. You know, guys and girls have been part of our fan club. You know, growing up in the eighties, uh, they. They help shape the decisions we make. All our fans do. We, we, we see how they respond to things on Twitter, on Facebook. We, we, we listen to what the forums are saying. We listen to what they say when they meet us at gigs. And, and, and that, that's all part of the thought process. It's a it's digestive period that takes a while. And, and we listen to what the fans have got to say. And, uh, and, and we, we want to create exciting ways to share our music. And we thought... Let's be a little bit secretive about Sigma coming out in a year, but let's let's just focus everyone on this part of the album equals, which we saw as part side one and two, 
and Sigma is almost five, three, and four. Um, and we, we knew that we wanted to release it exactly one year to the day. We, we, we tried to, but we, because of uh, the way the calendar works uh, and the odd numbers, we, we were actually exactly one year and one day on from the release of Equal. So that, that, that creates a nice symmetry. And, and the, you know, the artwork sort of is reflective of each other. And uh, so it completes a picture for us because Sigma is, is a Greek word for summation. And, and it's really, the, 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 it's, it's a, probably uh, the, the sort of final chapter of a, of a creative journey that started almost in 2015. Uh, I was, I've carried leukemia most of my adult life since 1995 and I relapsed. And, and in, the, in the healing recovery process, uh, my, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that shifted the whole dynamic of how we, we worked and, and moved forward as a, a musical entity. And, and a lot of things were put on hold. And it was in that void, really, that a lot of this record was conceived. It started as lyrics first, uh, lyrics that were just written into an iPhone as I was responding to situations I found myself in with my family where you know, our life was, and our livelihoods were being threatened on, on all sides. And, uh, and these are just responses. I, I couldn't have a guitar with me while I was stood outside an operating theatre. My, my, my wife was having surgery for breast cancer. But I, I felt the need to express myself, so I just wrote words and words and words into my phone at the time, or, or whatever I had handy. And, and it was only when we took, got to ourselves, ourselves to a place of calm, and I showed all these outpourings to my wife, Jules. She said, you know what, I think that's your next album. That's where it seems to come from. And, she was right, and uh, and that and so the, the the lyrics dictated the whole conception of this record from the start. Whereas usually I would work with uh, a, a melody or a chorus line and work backwards, almost going down the mountain. You know, the high point of any song is the hook line, it's the chorus, and I would actually work myself back towards the ground where the that's where the introduction was, then the first verse and the bridge to get back to the chorus. Whereas with this one. In, in a way, a bit like reflective of Canterbury, we started at the bottom of the mountain with the, with the basic ingredients, and then, and then we found the hook lines. The further we travelled into, and the higher up we went into this music that we were creating unconsciously. Now, do you do you find that the writing was somewhat therapeutic for you also because you were, in a, and I just said I was just in the hospital, and, and you go crazy. There's nothing to do. You know, you're scared. But did you find the writing was therapeutic and really helped you get through your visit? Hundred percent. It gave me something to focus on. It gave us. It gave us a distraction. You know, there was a lot of harsh realities we had to face. You know, my wife, Jules, had to have a, you know, breast taken out, and uh, you know, had to go through intensive chemotherapy. I, I was placed in a really scary predicament of maybe facing a bone marrow transplant unless my doctor could convince this new uh, drug environment to take me on their clinical trial and, and to get me onto a new drug that could prolong my life in the way I lived it, you know, and, uh, and, and they were scary times, and, and, and having the distraction of lyrics and music and something to focus on really helped me through. I, I, I did, you know, push against um, the, the idea that we should cancel everything. When, when Jules was diagnosed, it was, it was impossible to continue in the way we had, and we had to postpone all our concerts. Uh, and I said, rather than cancel, let, let's put them a year in a year's time. Let's bank on that we're going to have a good outcome. There's going to be recovery here, and we can go on tour. And let's let's plan for the future now while we're in this dilemma, rather than respond to it at the end of the situation. I, I felt like if we had 
something to look forward to, something to focus on. It would aid our recovery, not hinder it. And that's how it, how it all transpired. So being able to write some of this music really helped us through incredible situations. And that's why I think, I think it's resonated with our fans, you know, more so than a lot of our music of the last 20 years because it's come from a very real place and places that they've been to themselves in their own lives. And they can recognise what, what has happened and, and how it's been described in the, in the music and the lyrics and, and the sounds that we've created. I was going to say that, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, you, your fans, like I'm a fan, I'm, I'm 55, you know, we all start going through personal health problems and people we know to, and I think when we see someone that, you know, we, we admire and we like their music, I think it helps us a little bit to know that they're also going through something like that. Yeah, look, there's always, that's how the best music uh, lives on. It, it creates an empathy with the listener. Um, you know, when we were young, we had spiky hair and, and we, we had our fists in the air and we had a lot to say and we were trying to break out of the confines that life imposes on you when you're young and, and you're being straight jacketed into those straight lines that, that have maybe been laid out by your, your parents or an earlier generation and you're, you're trying to sidestep that and swerve it and, and go in a different direction. That, that's not easy. And, and we created a soundtrack for that transition and transitionary period between being a youth and becoming a young adult uh, and, and we really created an empathy and a resonance with our audience that, that created the following that we we rely on today that, that are still with us and, and it, it, a deep bond was made and, and I can see those bonds that are being made as deep now through this new music because we've we've all come a long way to to, to, to still have the alarm in the, in the reality that it is you know still making new music still being able to tour not just looking backwards, but going forward with, with as much en- energy and purpose as we had when the band began. Uh, you know, we, we recognise that the, the, um, the terms of the agreement have changed, and, and it's the different rules that we that we live by and we and we adhere back to. But but the, the passion and the energy and the outlook is, is, remains the same. It's forward facing, and, and 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 we lift out some of the lyrics <laughs> that we have laid out in, in, in front of us and, and we've been through those situations uh, whereas we could only when we say we, we, you know when I when we, our first song that people got to know us for in the UK particularly was 68 Guns Will Never Die and that's what people used to ask me about they say what's 68 Guns about and I'd answer them but now people say what's it like to never die to, 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 to keep going through all these life struggles that you've been faced with and, and so the song is has changed from being a youthful battle cry now to being an anthem of, of, of never-say-die spirit that you find when you get to your adult stages of life and, and you've got a family to, 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 to provide for and to, and to stay alive for. So it's, um, you know, it, it, I've always, always used to say when, when, when with the alarm that, that you know, we, we saw a lot of bands come along that became much bigger than we were. We started out after us and I say to the guys, look, we're, let's just imagine, we're in the, on the car, we're in the car that's on the inside lane, and we'll see those guys in their Porsche 911, and whoosh, and they go ahead in the distance, but one day we'll meet them, and they'll be in a wreck on the side of the road, and we'll just keep going. And that's the journey we're on, and we're still on that journey, and we've seen tons of people crash and burn on the side of the road, and they're never to be seen or heard of again, and, but we're not one of those acts, luckily. You've been around, yeah. As you say, you're one of those uh, acts with long, long, you know, 
the long distance. You're going for the long haul. What uh, what made you get into music? Because I know you know I know you were in a band called the Toilets and a bunch of different bands. But was music around your house? What made you decide this career? Which I'm sure when you decided when you were younger, you didn't know it would be a career. But what 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 got you into this biz? It, there wasn't there wasn't um, a great deal of music in my household, but it was a pub. You know, it was a public house. And there was a jukebox, and, and people played music and sang along to songs in in the bar, and uh, and there was a lot of sport. I would go and see a lot of soccer teams in the northwest of, of Wales and England, and, um, and and over the channel, as you hear some amazing music in the seventies when I was growing up, bands like Slade and Sweet, and I say, what what's that? You know, and I'd see guys with uh, splash patches on their denim jackets with Slade and and Wizards, T-Rex, and who's Mark Boland, you know, but what kind of guy's that? And when you discovered that they were musicians and they played in bands, it was just like, wow, I, that, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be one of those guys in a band. And that's sort of where it really started. I grew up in a seaside town, real, not not unlike a British version of Asbury Park, if you like. Uh, it was uh, certainly in the 70s, there was a lot of show bands, and uh, I had an older sister, she was five years older than me, and she, she went out with a guy in a band, and he played in the, in the bars and the club in Bill, and saw them play a couple of times, and it looked so exciting, and uh, and, and free. You know, everyone I met who was in a band seemed to be uh, unconcerned about life, and, and it, you know, if certain things happened to them, well, it, it was like, hey, that's meant to be, we're, we're, I can still play the guitar. And I thought, wow, that's, that's cool, you know, if they lost their wages or lost their job, uh, that, that, you know, a lot of them were, were working on the roads and then playing music in bands at night. And, and if they lost their job and they had to go look for another one, they said, hey, well, still in the group, still life goes on. You know, that's what I'm really living for. And that, that's, I thought, what a great attitude to life. So, uh, and that's what I wanted to sign up to do. Now, how did you bridge from loving that, you know, what you wanted to do to actually getting a band started? Well, it's difficult because you, there's no um, rule book. There was no blueprint to follow. You just had to follow what had gone before you. And, uh, you know, for me, living in Wales, it, it, trying to be in a band in, in uh, probably 73, 74, that's probably when it really started to dawn on me that I could, wanted to try and get a group going in school. You know, there was still a massive shadow of the Beatles. You know, that was, they'd only come from 50 miles away in Liverpool. And, they, they, you know, they'd only just broken up. But they, they, they show you how far you could go. Um, but this, there was this massive gap that, that there was established bands that were huge, and then there was not a lot in between. And uh, the only bands that you could aspire to be in where I grew up were, were cover bands, learning to play, you know, Roxy Music or Sweet or Slade or things like that. And uh, and that's what we did at first. We, we tried to be in those kind of bands, and, and we were terrible at it. And we just weren't good enough musicians. You know, we, we couldn't get to that the level that they were at with way beyond where we were. And, and it was only when we saw the Sex Pistols that we thought, aha, they're, they're doing it for the same three chords we know. That's enough for us. <laughs> and, and that got me into starting a punk band and, and that was, and, and that was, that opened the door. They, they, they showed a way. They shone a light in, in the, the, the major thing. I think that's, that's the way I can go. And so punk rock was my salvation, really. So you went from punk, and then you you know, you formed different bands. I know, as I said, you were in a band called the Toilets. And how did the alarm come about? And how did you get the name? 
Well, we, we were called 17 after the toilet, but there was only myself in the first line of the toilet, and then one by one, the guys who became members of Arsenal drifted into the scene because there wasn't a lot happening in North Wales. It was the, I was the first sort of original material band in North Wales that you could sort of think of in a way. And, uh, and so one by one, the, those younger guys that were my age started to, we, we all found each other through the grapevine. And, and they, I realised that they, they were better than, you know, the guys I was playing with were dropping out because of, you know, drugs or just didn't have the energy to keep going when it got a little bit tougher. And then, um, and then we settled on a, a lineup that, that was, became the alarm, but we were called 17 first. And, uh, and we had a lot of energy, but we, did, we didn't have enough real songs that connected. We, did, we didn't realise it at the time, but that's probably one of the reasons. And uh, we got a tour, luckily we got a tour supporting the Stray Cats who pretended to be a support band at one of their gigs and uh, they admired our cheek and uh, balls and, uh, and, and put us on a tour with them and, and that's when we really saw how a, a, a young band operates that wanted to set themselves apart and they had, they had a haircut, they had the quits, they played great guitars, you know, Slim Jim stood up and Lee Rocker was jumping all over his bass and Brian Setzer was like Elvis with meets Jimi Hendrix. It was an incredible sight to behold. And, and, and we just thought, well, we've got to, that's, if that's where we're going to go next, that we've got to up our game. And so we, we became almost like a psych, psychedelic sort of cowboy mod band. And, uh, and we, we put pickups in acoustic guitars to amplify our songs from the source level. Uh, and we called ourselves The Alarm uh, as a result of, that the Alarm Along was the first song I'd ever written for our band, The Toilets, and, and that, that was the first creative act. We said, let's call ourselves Alarm Alarm, and we were going to bill ourselves that for our first gig until John Peel read out our letter and said, there's a lot of these bands with double barrel names, Duran, Duran, Talk, Talk, and he made a joke about changing his name to John Peel, John Peel. <laughs> so I said to the lads, well, I think we should call ourselves The Alarm from now on, otherwise we'll get that joke for the rest of it. So... Uh, so that was how the alarm was, was, was born and named. Now, was it hard getting a record deal back then? You said you were you were touring with uh, Sport with the Stray Cats. I know you guys eventually signed with IRS, I believe. But how did you get? What was the process of you getting a record deal? Well, it, it was it was it, it was it was hard to get a record deal, but but there was lots of record labels. But in those days. If, if you got turned down by EMI, you went to Polydor, and if Polydor turned you down, you went to Decker, and they turned you down, you went to MCA, and, and then you went down and down and down the food chain. But you, you probably have three or four hundred record labels to approach in Britain. And, and um, we, Eddie McDonald's uh, in the alarm with me at that time, he, he, we, we used to read the music papers, and we saw there was a an advert in a, in a magazine, you know, British bands wanted, you know, for a record deal. And we, we answered the advert, and it was to a, a, a dentist in Dulwich in South London, and he offered to put up the money to make our first record. And we came home with a record deal, and that's when Nigel Swift, the band, joined and decided he wanted to sign up because he could make a record. And Dave Sharp was in the alarm, convinced his father he could leave the Navy permanently instead of being a weekend member of the band. He left to join to make the record, and, and uh, so it, it was it was hard to get a record deal, but but there was also lots of options. So if you were anyway decent, you would eventually get something, and uh, and that's that's what happened. But then getting a deal for the alarm proved a lot more difficult 
in in the sense that then our, our we we got we came, moved to London. We played with you two in 1981. Uh, we played a lot of gigs in '82, and we started to build up a following. Our expectation grew from being a band that would take anything. We wanted an actual album deal, and we we nearly signed to EMI. They offered us a single deal, but they wouldn't offer us a, an album deal. And so we, we decided to go to IRS Records, who were offering us a chance to make an album as well as singles. And although they were a smaller label, our manager, Ian Wilson, said, look, the guys, what's good about these IRS Records is it's owned by Miles Copeland. And he understands America, and he knows how to break bands in America. Just look what he's done with the police. And that was enough for us, and we, we, we had a great relationship with IRS uh, that still exists to this day. You know, a lot of the team that were at uh, IRS and working at Ingroups, the, the record labels we still work with in America now, with the alarm. So, that Michael Clare, who was the guy who broke us at radio in America in 1983 with a stand, he, he's the one who's working the alarm records at radio this summer. So, it, it, a lot of things have, great things have happened just because we were on IRS records. Because it, it, was, it was like the alarm, it's a homely label, it was an ideas label. They didn't have the biggest checkbooks to go out and spend $500,000 buying you onto American radio stations in the payola years. They just had to do hard work and good ideas and, and come up with catchy phrases and, and, and make a stand for their artists on, on the true value of their music, which was, it stood us in good stead as well. Now, you know, you said, you mentioned U2, and I know you came to the America to be in support of U2 in a tour. What was it like for when you guys hit America, and how long do you think it took till you started getting recognized in the States? Because I remember watching your videos, and we dug your music, but how long do you think that took? Well, to be honest, uh, it, 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 it was, it, we were really lucky, because uh, it, well, as soon as we played with U2, they were our friends. And when Bono and the Edge were going into radio stations, they were saying, hey, don't play New Year's Day. There's a band from Wales opening for us tonight. They're called The Alarm, and this is their record. It's called Come On Down and Make the Stand. And, and they were the guys that were playing our music to American radio. So it, I know people, people have experienced that before. And, and all the YouTube fans think, wow, who's these? You know, and they were coming in to check us out. And IRS Records uh, responded to it and put our first two UK singles out. Uh, as an EP, a five-track EP, just the, the two A-sides and the three B-sides. And, and it took off like a rocket straight away. It was a grassroots thing. And, that we, and our, you know, unlike a lot of bands, our first, tour, our first date in America was in front of 8,000 U2 fans. And they probably all went out and bought the alarming pin the next day. And then, you know, within weeks, we're playing in, at the LA Sports Arena or we're on the pier in New York. And playing to lots of people in a short space of time, and had no idea who we were. There was no fanfare from Britain. We went on the cover of the Enemy or Melody Maker. We hadn't been in the British charts, but people had no idea who we were. And I think that that endeared us to a lot of people because I think for Americans, there was no preconception. People were, were taking us on face value. Thinking, hey, that's a, that, I like that band. They're interesting. Look at the guitars. Look at the haircuts. Listen to the lyrics. Listen to the sound. It's different. Let's check them out. Let's make them our band too, and uh, and that's how it worked. Where did you find the lyrics from back then? Where did they come from? Where did they resonate from? Well, always like now, they're from life experience. You know, come on down and make the stand. That okay? That was uh, you know from reading the Stephen King book on the road. But it was I I I could relate to the story that book was putting across about making stands or 
you know, in that case of the book, it was for humanity and the world. And but you know, when you're making a stand on behalf of your music and your community and where you've come from and your fans and your bandmates, and you're trying to establish yourself in the world, that's that's really what what everything was was derived from. And uh, and, and it was it was from the heart. It was we weren't singing about you know the debauchery after rock and roll or the girls we met on the road. We, we were singing about our life struggles and our families back home and and how we were trying to you know, break out of that confine, but, but also keep the respect to the people we, we love, that even though they thought we were insane, you know, not not going to the job for life that, that my father had lined up for me in a, in a um, you know, in a, an airplane wing factory. Instead, I broke away from that, took a risk, joined the band, but I still want my dad to respect me and, and, and be there for me when I came home. And so I, I didn't want to write about a situation where I just, smashed into bits because he didn't agree with me being in a band. You know, I just I wanted to earn his respect. And I think that a lot of people like that, there's, there's a certain amount of rebellion that is just rebellion for the sake of it. But, you know, when you stand up for yourself in this situation, you do want to be earn the respect of your foe or your opposite and, and, and so that you can both understand and learn from each other and move forward. And, and I think that's where you know, we... we we were tagged as being a sort of political band at first, but we weren't. We, we weren't singing about party politics. We were singing about the politics of life, about get, get how to live together with people that you've never met before who've got maybe a different religion, different way of seeing the world. You know, we, we were young guys traveling to America. We'd never been there before. What, what's this country going to be like? We didn't go with the preconception like a lot of people we saw that were from British bands that came and said, we hate America, you know, we're, oh, we've seen it on TV back in Britain, it's a horrible place, you know, full of murderers and this, that and the other. We said, let's go discover it for face value. Let's not have a preconception and let's discover America for ourselves. My my grandfather came to America after the First World War in 1918. And he, he was sick of the horror of the First World War. He couldn't face coming home. And he went to America for three years and, and tried to create a living until he got up too homesick for Wales and uh, on New Year's Eve 1920 he left America and, and set sail for Britain and he, he always said to me the best sight he saw uh, was this, when he crossed the bridge into Wales and he knew his home and um, you know that that my but my father grandpa loved America so it was incredible and he, 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 when I first went he said mate it's a great place you go and enjoy it and here's some money and, you know he, he, he thought he was being clever giving me the fare to come home if I didn't like it, you know, and, and he, he put £25 in the pocket because that's how, how times have changed. But, you know, that, that, I think a lot, my, my, the way I saw America came from my grandfather who saw it as a land of opportunity and a land of, uh, you know, where anything could happen and you can make anything of yourself over there and uh, that's, that's how, that's where our lyrics are coming from, the same place. Now, being, being British, I was reading that you were on top of the pops. Is that... Is that was that huge for you? Because I'm sure every musician watched Top of the Pops. What was that like? Uh, yeah, it was massive. And, you know, the first time we did it, you know, we were actually in America. You know, we we, we didn't think we were the charts, but uh, what Johnny Rotten and Public Image pulled out of the show is unheard of. And, and the only band they could find that was in available was the Alarm, and we were in America. But since Miles Copeland who ran IRS Records, he, he had the foresight. He, he didn't see that as an obstacle. He said, I'll get him on a plane and I'll get him back to Britain overnight, and which we did. And uh, so it was, it was so exciting. It was, it was so out of the blue. 
something we never expected. And, and, and so we, we just were like kids at the show. You know, to us, it was like being asked to play at the last minute in the Super Bowl and, and, you, and you score the, the, the winning touchdown in your first minute. You know, it was just like incredible. Uh, and, then, and then after that, it, it wears off a little bit because you are mining, you're playing along to your record. And and, uh, and then you meet other artists in the same situation. Our second Top of the Pops, we were on the same show as The Smiths, making their debut, and Echo and the Bunnymen, Ian McCulloch, and, uh, you know, just chatting to them. was uh, it, it started to open our eyes to what, 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 what's possible and, and what, what the downsides are, too. So, but to, to go on Top of the Pops, it was a great film. What I liked about it more than anything was that it was diverse. You could be on top of the pop next to sort of jive bunny or some stupid, you know, act that, that have no relevance as a one-hit wonder. But it made your band seem even more important because you came on after something that had nothing to do with you. Whereas today in music, everything gets put in these straight lines. This is rock music, this is disco, this is alternative, this is pop. And, and there's no crossover, no cross-fertilisation. So you can't compare the genres to one to the next because they're never played in the same arena anymore. And that, uh, so I always think that was great because when, you know, I'm sure probably the, the Smiths came on after sort of like Olivia, how important and how powerful the Smiths were uh, as a result, you know. So and you just don't see that anymore. It's not quite the same. And we were lucky enough to go on American Bandstand as well. And that was similar, you know, there was pop acts, dance, Now, in 91, you guys split up. Why? What happened? Uh, Life took hold of us. That, that, it, was, it was a breakdown of, of uh, a lot of uh, communication skills that we didn't have at our, in our arsenal at that time. You know, and and it, it sounds really shocking now and sad that, you know, that that's what was happening. My, my father died, our drummer's stepfather committed suicide and we found him. My sister had a brain hemorrhage. Two of the band had gone to live in America. They'd married into American families. I was the only one living in Wales uh, uh, and one of the other guys was living in London and, and the distance and the emotion of all that we had to deal with was so vast that we, we, we lost each other. We lost communication with, within the band. The bonds that tied us together were severed because of these outside influences and, and we, we didn't have the skill set to, to put them back together at that time. So the band went its separate ways, and then and then it came together again in 1999. Um, Eddie approached me about playing some music again, and, and we, we did a soundtrack to a play together called Flesh and Blood. Then we did some shows with Big Country, and then it became The Alarm, and, and, and Eddie played a few shows with us and then he, he decided he didn't like it being the he didn't like being on the road anymore. He'd been off the road for ten years and wanted to get back to being a photographer and that that's sort of what he what he did. And uh, and then it, so I was left carrying the bat on. We we played together again in, in two thousand and three, uh, uh parts of bands reunited and, and that that was a great thing as well because we our reunion was, was able to be filmed and captured and broadcast so everybody got to see it, not just the people at that one show that we made. So that that was it. That was again that brought us together. Only uh, you know, and we were able to start to deal with some of the things that that, um, that had splintered us. But our friendship, you know, friendships can be 
severed, but in, they, they can still be patched together. And our, our friendship, our deep friendship, was was always there. And that, and and at recent times, you know, Dave Sharp, our original guitarist, he's playing on the new album. He's played on the track Equals, which is on the new Sigma album. And and then we were in San Francisco uh, last summer, and Nigel Chris came up and played. He had his support band playing with us as well, his own group. And, and it, it's it's pretty harmonious, you know. So it, it, and we all have been there collaborating on the, the you know and in contact over the reissues of uh, the new uh, versions of the Alarm album from the eighties. So we have an ongoing relationship that that works. And uh, and and we, the Alarm's part of one big mass. We're all one massive family, really. So that's how it works now. Now, how did you find the lineup you're with now? I know uh, James has been on the show before. You know, he's had such a great musical lineage. How did you find your lineup that you're playing now? And is it hard to be, get comfortable with people? No, uh, look, uh, life brings you together. It's, uh, I think um, you know, when, when, you, when you, you're out there and you, you need a drummer, the, the guy comes through the door, he plays the drums, he becomes your drummer. You don't almost get a chance to find out if you like the guy or not. You, can he play the drums? Can he play the way I want him? Yes. Fantastic, let's get on with it. Then you, then you go on tour and you go, oh, hang on, maybe I'm not quite sure about this guy or that guy. And, but you're, you're living with it then, so you get on with it. So, But with, with the alarm of today, we're all best mates. When we're on the road, this summer, we all we can't wait. We're all, we're like a family. We're, it's so tight, you know. James is, is I love him. You know, he's if you ever need a friend to count on, James is one of those guys. He's always there when you need him. He's amazing, brilliant musician. Knows how to be in a band. Knows how to respect the time when you maybe need a bit of privacy. Knows when to you know put his arm around you to respect what you're trying to do go with you into the darkness when you're not quite sure what you're trying to express, when it's an instinct only. Uh, Smiley, our drummer, again, he's played with Joe Strummer, he's played with Robbie Williams, he's, he's, in, he's my best mate, you know, he, I get on with, we get on like a house on fire. Jules plays keys with us now, and, and we're just like, we're like, <laughs> you, want, you, want, you ever go on YouTube and and look at the alarm in the dressing room. Sometimes we put videos, we're all bouncing around, getting ready to go on stage, and we're probably singing along to, like, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, and <laughs> dancing around the room, having the most amazing time. And, um, and and that's, even this summer, when we're coming over um, to do the signature, you know, we'll be, we're going to be broadcasting a lot of things. We want to show people what it's like to be in a band that gets on really well. Uh, and, and that loves touring and being in each other's company, and that's what we have in the alarm right now. Well, you know, a lot of people know of your music, but uh, a lot of people don't know about your love, hope, and strength, and you had that huge concert uh, back in 2007. What was that like? How did you get the people to play on that? Well, with, when we went to Everest, it was just a case of put, at first putting a phone call out, you know, to, to see who would be up for coming to perform in these iconic mountain locations and uh, I think Glenn Tilbrook was an early one to sign up and it took him about two minutes to say yes, it's less than that uh, and, um, and then Slim Jim Bantam I know from the Stray Cats and he, you know from the back in the day we'd always stay friends and, and he just said yes right away and, and that's how it worked it, 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 we put an honest call out we didn't try to uh, you know it was, it, I mean, it was, we were asking 
Olympics to climb Everest, you know, to go get, leave their family for two and a half, three weeks and do some training. It, it wasn't an easy call. We went, it wasn't an all-paid expenses trip to an arena somewhere <laughs> with, a, with a nice backstage area full of free drinks. It was a, we were asking to do the opposite. Uh, go into some place they, they might never go before, test themselves in a, in a place they've never been before. And, uh, and I think the challenge responded, and that's, people are like that with, with low folk strength, because we, we ask them to do the unexpected, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's an honest call, and, uh, and we've been very fortunate to have the support of some amazing artists. Now, you also, you recently reserve, uh, received the MBE, what? How did how did that come yeah, up? And right, that, yeah. that's amazing. I mean, that's such a, a, a high honor. What what happened? How did it get bestowed upon you? Um, well, I don't know really. I still don't know. It was uh, you obviously put forward by people who are monitoring what's going on in society. And um, you know, with Love Up Strength, we've done a lot of work. Uh, you know, all our work is raises funds for people who don't have access to the kind of treatments that kept myself alive or my wife do. Uh, so we we do events here in Wales. We climb Snowdon every year. And we raise money for cancer services in the shadow of the mountain. When we're on the summit, we can see down below the cancer centres. We're going to be supporting. It's the same when we head to Everest. And, and uh, so with a lot of people, we've raised a lot of money, a, a lot of awareness. Uh, we saved a lot of lives. who will get on the list. Bomo uh, sign up campaign. And, uh, and the word's obviously filtered back to Buckingham Palace, and they've gone, well, let's recognise that guy. So, you know, I, I thought it's been a, um, an award for the public strength, not just for me personally. Of course, it's an incredible honour for me and my family and the kids. And, but it, 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 it's for everyone, for all the alarm fans, for everyone who supported Love Folk Strength. It's um, a real honour for all of us. We, we describe it as a, the MBE stood for a multitude of brilliant efforts. Okay. And that, that describes all the efforts everyone who's done a uh, foot in the name of Love Hope Strength or, or come to a gig to volunteer or swap the cheek. It's for everyone who's, who's made a donation and helped make a difference through the, the name of our charity, Love Hope and Strength. Now, you're starting a new tour. What can your fans expect to see? Are you going to play a lot of music off Sigma? Are you going to play classics? Is there going to be any storytelling? What can your fans expect to see on this tour? Well, I, I, it's going to be a full-on rock and roll tour. With, with uh, be, uh, it'll be different every night. I mean, we 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 don't play the same set twice. Uh, we, we respond to what happens in the audience. Uh, we, we, it's going to be a very uh, interactive tour. There'll be a lot of communication in and out of the dressing room through social media uh, sites that, that we, we're, we're present on through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. YouTube or, or Spotify or all those kind of places where you can communicate with your audiences, bands in town, there's so many. Um, um, we're, we're creating um, events and, and uh, an output for all, all those formats. So uh, nowadays, because it's so easy to see what the band played when you were in one town and you go to see them in the next town, but, um, it can give the game away. So our, 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 our um, focus as a band is change things up so you don't when you when you come to see us in San Francisco what what we do in Sacramento the next night isn't going to be the same and uh, and that, that's how it is so it's a mix of everything you know we we don't think to just see us as being a you know a copycat band of what we did in the 80s that's not what we're about and I, I don't think our fans expect that they know that we'll respect that era there'll be some certain songs played from that era that 
that define what an alarm gig is and that they, those songs get played. Those songs are Strength, 68 Guns, The Stand, Spirit 76, all those kind of Blaze of Glory, Walk Forever By My Side, those iconic songs that we're known for will get played uh, alongside things that, that have become huge with our audience now through through the release of Equals from last year, through like, things like Two Rivers and Beautiful, they'll get played. And, and Neutral and, and Cenotaph. And then the songs on Sigma that are going to get an airing, Blood Red Vile, Black, Brighter Than The Sun. They're all, they're all part of uh, what make an alarm gig special now. And, uh, but the, the most important ingredient is to expect the unexpected. Now, what's the feeling? It must be a great feeling when you have people come up after the show who have been a fan for all these years, who've turned their kids into fans, how some of them maybe even their grandkids and fans. What is that like as a musician when you see that happen? Does that just sit there and culminate what your career has been about? Well, it does because that, that is what your career is about. You know, my, my career is always about creating a lifelong uh, journey with the fans, not not just some... I wasn't, just didn't want to just be there for five minutes to sell them a record, disappear with the... With the the, the you know the, uh, the the spoils of the take you know to me it was uh, it was always about making something lasting creating a lasting legacy that even when I'm gone people still have respect for what the alarm did and achieved in its time you know and the alarm has been a band that's had to you know survive climate changes and find a way to still stay relevant to become relevant outside of the era the band was born in all, all those things are you know that they, 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 they you can get lost in the middle of those um, engagements, if you like, and, and, and you could give up there and then, but we've been fortunate to see them through to the other side and we can stand tall and say, yeah, we've been through that and we survived. And we've been through that too, we survived that. And we're a real survival story. And, uh, and, and we have an event in Wales called a Gathering. We just have held our third one in New York. We've we turned up to our 28-year running. And that, that's really where we... the, the physical manifestation of our relationship with our audience takes place. You know, we, we built a big relationship with the audience online post-91, and but the, the physical manifestation happens at the gathering where I was at times in my life unable to travel because of the leukemia. So the fans came to me, and we, we set up camp in Wales, and we put on a massive three-day event, and we played alarm songs for days and days, and they kept coming. And we stayed there, and, and we and we met everybody and everyone at home, and we all shook hands together, and we made a promise to each other that we'll be there next year too. And that's that's what drives us on. You know, it's not just me. I don't drive the alarm. The audience do it as well. Now, do you are you working currently on new music too, or are you just getting ready for the tour, or and do you plan to put out a new album in the next year or two? Yeah, I'm always working on stuff. <laughs> I've got a lot of things on the go, yeah. So, uh, I mean, when, when we come home from the American tour, um, I'm, I'm uh, embarking on a British tour. Uh, it's more of a solo storyteller um, representation of, of records we did 30 years ago. We, we In 87, we recorded either Hurricane, 88, Electric Folklore, and 89. The album changed. Now, to me, it was a... a, a a bond between all those three records. They were almost like an alarm trilogy, really. Uh, I don't think any of us quite recognised it at the time. But, um, you know, looking back in hindsight and piecing the music together and seeing the lyrics in certain ways, there's, there's a thread that runs through all that music. So I'm looking forward to taking that out on the road, you know, and giving people a new insight into that part of our history. 
and uh, and seeing where, where that that leads to the future because uh, you know the the, the seeds of um, Sigma and the equals of Blood Red Viral Black were, were all sown through me doing something similar with our first album when the 30th anniversaries of Declaration and Strength came around. I, I didn't want to just reissue them just down the, the original recordings. I wanted to look back at the songs. How could they be? How could they be reinformed by you know, reinterpreting them or you know me looking through those lyrics that got left behind on the cutting room floor? Should they have stayed in the songs? You know, with the benefit of hindsight, some of them, uh, uh, you know, the song 68 Guns, for instance, we, we had to take a verse out of that song to, to, to get to the chorus straight away so the radio would play it. And, and in our naivety, I said, yeah, take the second verse out. And I realised that verse left behind all those years ago gave the song its true meaning. It, that it was, that there was a line that said, if they take our chances, we'll create our own. We left that out of the song, and when you play the song today with those lyrics in the second verse, it takes the song to another level. And it's and to be able to share that and and repair that with our fans has been really uh, it's really insightful. It's led to new lyrics, new songs that come for the future. And I'm hoping that by going back to the hurricane of change, uh, some new avenues of exploration will, will be uh, opened up. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for coming on. The, the album's coming out in June. The, the U.S. store starts July 19th. People, the Alarm's website is thealarm.com. Go go to YouTube. Look up The Alarm. Look up Mike Peters. And so, Michael, thank you. People, uh, check my website out, coopertalk.net. I have over uh, 720 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at cooper. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.